0: We shall now continue the book, The Atonement, by Arthur W. Pink, and we're continuing in Chapter 22, The Atonement, Its Proclamation. The only difficulty lies in the fact that finite creatures are utterly unable to comprehend the sovereign will and the unchangeable all-knowledge of God, which absolutely shuts out all contingency in relation to the hopes, the fears, the doubts, the responsibilities, the struggles of human beings. Events are contingent in themselves, but there is no contingency in relation to divine purpose. One event is conditioned in divine decree. God's purpose, his design of redemption, like every other divine purpose, is timeless. What has been and what will be, who have believed and who will believe, are all the same to him. To him, the believers and the elect are identical. His design in the atonement may, with absolute indifference, be stated either as a design to save the elect... Or as it is designed to save all who have believed or who would believe on his Son. A. A. Hodge. The preachers of the gospel in their particular congregations, being utterly unacquainted with the purpose and secret counsel of God, being also forbidden to pry or search into it, Deuteronomy 29.29, may from hence justifiably call upon every man to believe, with assurance of salvation to every one in particular upon his so doing knowing and being fully persuaded of this that there is enough in the death of Christ to save everyone that shall so do, leaving the purpose and counsel of God on whom he will bestow faith and for whom in particular Christ died even as they are commanded to himself. John Owen. Nothing but confusion can disturb our minds if we fail to distinguish sharply between God's eternal purpose and man's present duty. The two things are quite distinct and have no connection between them. The purpose or decree of God is not the rule of our duty, nor is the performance of our duty in doing what we are commanded any declaration of God's eternal counsels that it should be done. There is no sequel between the universal precepts of the word and God's purpose in himself concerning specific persons. The business of the preacher is to urge the fact that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30, leaving it with the spirit to work a saving repentance in whom he pleases. When I tell an individual sinner this is his command, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John 3.23, I know not whether God has decreed the work of saving faith in him, nor is that any of my business. My duty is to discharge the commission Christ has given me, and the duty of my hearers is to comply with God's demands. God himself will see to the accomplishment of his foreordination. Coming now to the closer answer the question raised at the beginning of this chapter, the supreme business of God's servants is to preach Christ. Now to do this, there must be a scriptural setting forth of his glorious person as the eternal Son, the maker of heaven and earth. There must be an exposition of his two natures, his absolute deity, his holy humanity. There must be an explanation of his office, a prophet to reveal the will of God a priest to offer himself a sacrifice to God, a king to rule over the people of God. There must be a declaration of the two states in which he exercises his office. First, of humiliation, his condensation in becoming flesh, the reasons for this, and the glorious consequence of it. Second, his glorification, his, exalt- his exaltation to the right hand of God, his headship over the church, his intercessory ministry, but, supremely, there must be the preaching of his obedience to the law, his perfect righteousness, his vicarious death, the all-sufficiency of his merits to those who trust in him. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians two, two. We are not only to open up the mystery of his person, the manifold glories of his many offices, the perfection of his character, but above all we are to expound the meaning of the cross, It is only by dwelling much on the varied significations of the Calvary that the truth can be fully told out, whether the sinfulness of man's sin or the greatness of God's love. To illustrate the various aspects of the sacrificial work of the Redeemer, a close study needs to be given to and then a free use made of the Old Testament types. But it is not sufficient to barely preach Christ. There must also be an application made of what is revealed in Scripture concerning him to the use of God's people that their hearts may be drawn out to him and that they may see their interest in him to preach is to woo a servant of God is not only an advocate pleading his master's cause refuting the objections of opposers but he also is a witness telling out of his own experience the preciousness of Christ thus he is to attract, allure and win souls to him that which best fits any minister to preach Christ is to himself walk and commune with him a part of some of the typical sacrifices was revealed as a feast for the offerer and his friends. So we must teach the saints to look away from self to Christ, to feed on him, to live by him, and to be occupied with his perfections. Because men are by nature opposed to Christ, the servant of God must begin with the law, so as to discover to them the dreadful state they are in. The claims of God upon us as his creatures must be pressed. The perfect and constant obedience which he requires from man must be clearly set forth. Then the utter failure of man to meet God's righteous claims upon him and the exceeding sinfulness of his disobedience. A way must be made for the gospel by showing and convincing people that they are out of Christ under the condemnation of a holy God and of themselves utterly unable to liquidate their debts. The ministry of John the Baptist must proceed that of Christ. The contents of Romans 1.18-3.20 must be stressed before the good news of Romans 3.21-26 is proclaimed. What need of a physician till we know we are sick? What need of a Savior till we know we are lost? What need of Christ to cleanse till we see our filthy defilement? At the outset, the preacher needs to recognize and realize that the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8.7. No arguments of this can overcome, no inducements melt the heart of stone. Paul may plant, and Apollos may water, but God can only can give the increase. Nothing short of the supernatural working of the Spirit can bring a sinner to Christ. Therefore, both the preacher and his Christian hearers need to be much in prayer, seeking the Holy Spirit's grace and power to quicken, convict, and convert the lost. We are fully assured that one principal reason why there are so few genuine conversions today is because there is so little real and importune praying unto God. We are to dwell largely on the being and perfection of God and our original obligations to him who is by nature our creator. We are particularly to explain the nature and reasonableness of the divine law and to answer the sinner's objections against it. We are to exhibit to his view the sin which he stands charged with in the divine law and the curse he is under for it. and The only way of obtaining pardon through the blood of Christ. In a word, we are to open to his view The whole plan of the gospel, the infinite riches of God's grace, the nature and sufficiency of God's atonement, the readiness of God to forgive repenting sinners who come to him in the name of Christ, the calls and invitations of the gospel, the dreadfulness of eternal misery in the lake of fire and brimstone, the glory and blessedness of the heavenly state, the shortness and uncertainty of time, the worth of his souls, the dangers which attend him from the world, from the flesh, and the devil the inexcusable guilt of final repentance, and so forth. Joseph Bellamy, 1759. It is most important for us to recognize and constantly bear in mind the fact that the gospel is addressed to a sinner's responsibility. It is true from one viewpoint that the gospel comes to men who are not on probation but under God's condemnation, yet from another viewpoint, parenthesis equally true, it is delivered to their accountability. It bids men to be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20, which is meant the throwing down of weapons of their warfare against him. It calls upon them to forsake their way and thoughts and return to the Lord, and announces to all who do so that he will have mercy upon them, Isaiah 55.7. It bids them repent and be converted, which means a right about faith, a turning from sin and self-pleasing unto God, and this in order that their sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.19. It commands all men to believe in Christ and receive him as their Lord. It announces that failure to believe is adding sin to sin and increasing their condemnation, John 3.16. The preaching of the gospel is both a declaration of God's revealed will to pardon all who will comply with his terms and an insistence upon the duty devolving on all who hear it. The business of Christ's servants is to present what Scripture teaches concerning the salvation of men and the way which God has ordered in the order to their obtaining of it. We are constantly depressed the fact that God has inseparably connected salvation with repentance and faith. Many today are laboring under the delusion that the only relation between God and man is that of creditor and debtors, and that Christ paid the whole debt. And therefore none are under any obligation of duty, and that all God now requires from any sinner is for him to believe that Christ has done all, and that faith is merely and simply arresting and relying on that fact. But such a concept is a fatal delusion and grossly dishonoring to God. The God of the New Testament is not another God from him who is revealed in the Old Testament. God is there set forth as a lawgiver, as a ruler over all, requiring perfect conformity to his demands. Now those requirements of God were neither justified nor tyrannical, but instead righteous and merciful. Nor did Christ come here to uh, abrogate the law, but rather to magnify the law and make it honorable, Isaiah 42.21. And when the Holy Spirit begins a saving work in the soul, he presses the requirements of God's law, convicts a failure to meet those requirements, and produces a deep and lasting sorrow for such failure. Father, he creates in the heart which he renews a love for the law, Romans 7.22, and a holy longing and determination to please and serve God. Thus the work of the Spirit in those who are truly saved is not to the setting aside of that duty which every man owes to God, his maker, sustainer, and governor, but it is the imparting of a delight unto the power and the performing of that duty. Thus the first duty of the evangelist is to call upon all men to repent. See Mark one fifteen. This is his very commission from Christ. See Luke 24.47. It was thus that Peter, Acts 2.38 and 3.19, and Paul evangelized. See Acts 17.30 and 20.21. our business is to show why God requires us repentance, namely for us to acknowledge the righteousness of His claims upon us. Our business is to show what repentance consists of. See Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, Acts 3, 19, 1 Thessalonians one nine, and so forth. Our business is to emphasize the fact that God never has and never will be pardon any sinner until he does repent. See Leviticus twenty-three twenty-nine twenty six forty forty two, first Kings eight, forty six, fifty, Psalms thirty two, three through five, Jeremiah four four, Ezekiel eighteen thirty through thirty two, Luke five, thirty two, thirteen three, Acts three nineteen, eleven, eighteen, and second Corinthians seven ten. The next great duty of the evangelist is to call on his hearers to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That this call may be something much more than a mere uttering of the word believe, believe, we must carefully define and explain what saving faith consists of. That it is first a sincere renunciation of all other ways and means of salvation, Acts 4.12. Second, that it is the free and full consent of the heart to God's way of salvation, Romans 10.9. Third, that it is a personal trusting in Christ and relying on the sufficiency of his satisfaction unto God, Acts 16.31. Saving faith is more than a bare belief of the truth. The dying Israelite might have been fully assured that a look on the brazen serpent would give healing, but until they actually looked in full confidence in God's promise, they had not benefited one whit. None received a soul-freeing discharge from the power and penalty of sin till they believed in Christ. Though the law of God has been satisfied and every demand of his justice met as to the sins of the elect, yet this has not hindered God from ascribing such a way for their coming to him as is suited to the exalting of his glory and the honor of Christ. This the Spirit accomplishes by preparing the soul of the sinner for the enjoyment of God and that by the law of faith. The benefits of Christ's death are only applied when we believe. The personal state of those for whom he shed his blood is not actually changed by his death itself, for they will still lie under the curse whilst they are unregenerate. Ephesians 2, three. That which Christ has procured for his own is left in the hands of the Father for him to bestow when he sees fit. Repentance and faith are necessary not to add anything to Christ's atonement nor to merit forgiveness, but only to the actual receiving of it. That which God calls the sinner to believe is the gospel. The first act of faith does not consist in believing that Christ died for me, but that he died for sinners. Christ is presented as an object of faith. The gospel announces that the Lord Jesus stands ready to receive every sinner who will throw down the arms of his rebellion and trust in him alone for salvation. As I do this and am saved by him, I obtain clear evidence of my election into salvation. John 6.37, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 The business of the preacher is not to offer Christ to sinners, but to preach him, expounding the doctrine of the gospel. Our duty is to give the general call the Holy Spirit will see to its effectual application to God's elect. The gospel is a divine fan. By it, the wheat is separated from the chaff. The gospel is addressed equally to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. To the one... It is the Savior of life to the other the Savior of death. Hence it is depicted as a two-edged sword proceeding out of the Redeemer's mouth. It resembles the pillar interposed between the Egyptians and Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. If our gospel says the apostle be hid, it is hidden to them that are lost. If men receive not the atonement made upon Calvary as the only ground of their hope, if they do not take shelter under the saving Savior's wings, then there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and far indignation, which shall devour them as the implacable enemies of God. James Aldine, While pressing on all their bonded duty to repent and believe, let not the servant of God be slack and plainly teaching that both repentance and faith are divine gifts. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 Acts 5.31. The natural man can no more savingly repent and believe than he can create a world. John 6.44. We may as well melt a flint or turn a stone to flesh as to repent in our own strength. It is far above the power of nature, nay, most contrary to it. How can we hate sin, which naturally we love above all? Forsake that which is as dear as ourselves. It is the almighty power of Christ which only can do this we must rely on, seek to him for it. Jeremiah three eighteen, Lamentation five twenty one. D. Clarkson wrote this in 1690 Finally let the servants of God see to it that his seal in preaching the gospel to the unsaved does not cause them to withhold from the children their needed bread. The reprobate may vomit it out, but the regenerate will be nourished thereby. Every preacher is under bonds to see to it that at the close of his pastorness he can say, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Acts 20.27 Only by so doing will he fulfill his commission, preserve the balance of truth, establish God's saints in the faith, and glorify his Maker. Chapter 23 The Atonement, Its Reception What must I do to be saved? Is the earnest and urgent? inquiry of one who has been truly awakened by the Holy Spirit, made to feel his lost condition, and deserts of eternal punishment. Where such an inquiry is sincerely made, the comforting answer furnished by the scripture is simple and plain. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Yet this does not mean that the preaching of the gospel is an easy matter for which every Christian is qualified. Far from it. From the divine side, none but those called of God and supernaturally taught by him are fitted for such a blessed and solemn task. From the human side a life's constant study is required to prepare a servant of Christ for proclaiming his unsearchable riches. Incalculable damage has been wrought by novices running into evangelical activities without being sin of God. To all such we would say, Oh that you would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Job 13.5 The last chapter we sought to indicate, though in little more than outline form, something of what is comprehended by or included in the proclamation of the Atonement. Briefly stated it is this, an exposition and explanation of the teaching of Scripture concerning the wondrous person of the God-man, of his relation to the Church as sponsor and surety of his varied offices of his perfect work, freely setting him forth as an all-sufficient savior ready to receive any who will truly feel their need of him and who trust in him. In this chapter, our aim is to set forth how the virtue of his sacrifice actually becomes ours in what way we are made the recipients of those priceless blessings which he purchased for his people. O may the Spirit so guide us into the truth that we may be enabled to treat of this important section of our subject in such a way as to truly honor God, edify his people, and help exercise souls. In taking up the reception of the Atonement, two things need to be kept quite distinct and treated separately, namely the operation of the Spirit and the act of the awakened sinner. Some of the older writers distinguish these two things by employing the terms the applicant of the Atonement and the appropriation of it. Probably we cannot improve upon them, but one speaks of the benefits of Christ's satisfaction being brought to those for whom it was made the other having reference to us laying hold of them and making them ours it is much like the twofold mention of the tabernacle's furniture in exodus or the order of the five great offerings in the opening chapter of leviticus god began with the ark exodus 25:10 then the mercy seat 25:17 then the table 25:23 the candlestick 25:31 and then the brazen altar 27:1 But it was the very opposite with Aaron, the representative of the people. He had to commence at the altar of sacrifice and came last of all to the ark. So the divine order of the offerings was the burnt meat, peace, and the sin and trespass. But But as men used them, parenthesis, according to their needs, they had to begin with the sin offering. The great satisfaction or atonement originated in the mind of God and was formulated in the terms of the everlasting covenant which was drawn up between the Father and the Mediator. It was accomplished here on earth by Christ, the incarnate Son, who by his perfect obedience and sufferings met every demand of the law and procured the eternal salvation for that people which had been given to him and whose sponsor he was. It is proclaimed and propounded in the gospel, and it is expounded by the true servants of the Lord Jesus." The particular aspect of this mighty theme, which is now to engage our attention, is how is the atonement made good to those for whom it was offered? Through what divinely appointed channel do the virtues of Christ's redemptive work actually reach this individual soul? In other words, what is required before a sinner today personally receives the saving benefits of that wondrous transaction which was consummated at the cross almost 2,000 years ago? The answer, which is now generally returned to this question, is that it is by means of the gospel. Salvation is conveyed to the soul, but obviously this answer is quite inadequate, for the great majority of those who hear the glad tidings which are published by the servants of Christ are not saved thereby. To some the gospel is a Savior of life unto life, to others it is a Savior of death unto death. What, then, is it which makes the difference? To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power... And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, first Thessalonians one five. The reference here is to the gracious and invincible operations of the third person of the Trinity. God the Father is the author of our salvation, God the Son the purchaser of it, God the Spirit is the conveyor. The imperative need for the work of the Spirit in order to make effectual the atonement and to the actual saving of sinners is a little perceived in these degenerate times, even by professing Christians. That man is a fallen creature is still allowed in some circles, nor has the term total depravity entirely disappeared from present day preaching. Yet as to the terrible consequences which sin has wrought in human constitutions, scarcely any now have any more than the vaguest conceptions. So long as man obeys the laws of his country, discharges with measurable faithfulness his human obligations, and does not grossly defy the commandments of God, it is popular to assume that there is little wrong with him that his heart is desperately wicked, that his mind is filled with enmity against God, that his will is antagonistic to him, that he is altogether unconscious of the deadly virus of sin which has corrupted every part of his inner being and which has completely unfitted him for any communion with the thrice Holy One is something which is altogether unknown to the vast majority of those now being, bearing the name of Christian. The truth is that the natural man is dead in trespasses and sin. Because of this, he is oblivious to the righteous claims of God upon him, and therefore knows not that in view of his failure to meet those claims, the wrath of God abides upon him. Because there is no spiritual life within him, he has no spiritual relish or appetite for divine things, though he may, parenthesis through religious education, have an intellectual and theoretical interest in them. Because the natural man is alienated from the life of God, he is completely under the dominion of sin, so that the pleasing of self, parenthesis, having his own way, is the governing principle of his whole life. Tell him that he is on his way to the everlasting burnings, and that they are his just due, and he believes it not. Either he thinks that he has done nothing, which deserves such terrible punishment, or he supposes that he has been delivered from the wrath to come. Having no spiritual perception, his understanding being darkened, Ephesians 4.18, it is impossible that he should be conscious of his dreadful condition or see his dire need. Only the Spirit of God can awaken any sinner from the sleep of death. Only he can impart spiritual life to the soul, supernatural light to the understanding, and sight to the eyes of the heart. This is what he is sent to do. He is the servant of the Godhead who is here to bring in the poor, the maimed, the halted, and the blind. He is the one who has been given to compel to come in, that the Father's house may be filled with the appointed guests. Luke 14:21-23. He compels by his sweet constraint, making the unwilling willing, creating in their heart a desire for the feast, making them to be conscious of their deep need of the bread of life. The Holy Spirit is the one who shines unto the sin-darkened mind, so that it is made conscious of its vileness. He is the one who so searches the conscience that the individual is made to feel he is the greatest sinner out of hell. He is the one who subdues the principle of self-love and self-will so that the soul is brought into subjection to God. He is the one who communicates faith so that the heart is enabled to embrace Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is as indispensable to your believing as is Christ in order to your being pardoned. The Holy Spirit's work is directed direct and powerful, and you will not rid yourself of your difficulties by trying to persuade yourself that his operations are all indirect and merely those of a teacher presenting truth to you. Salvation for the sinner is Christ's work. Salvation in the sinner is the Spirit's work. Of this internal salvation, he is the beginner and the ender. He works in you in order to your believing as truly as he works in you after you have believed. This doctrine, instead of being a discouragement, is one of unspeakable encouragement to the sinner. Mm -hmm. And he will acknowledge this if he knows himself to be the thoroughly helpless being which the Bible says he is. If he is not totally depraved, he will feel the doctrine of the Spirit's work a hindrance and an insult. No doubt, just as an able-bodied traveler would feel that you were both hindering and insulting him if you told him that he cannot set out on his journey without taking your arm. But as in that case he will be able to save himself without much assistance, he might just set aside the Spirit altogether and work his way to heaven alone. The truth is that without the Spirit's direct and almighty help, there could be no hope for a totally depraved being at all. If you understand the genuine gospel in all its preness, you will feel that the man who tries to persuade you that you have strength enough left to do without the Spirit is as great an enemy as the cross and of your soul as a man who wants to make you believe that you are not altogether guilty, but has some remaining goodness and therefore do not need to be wholly indebted for pardon to the blood and righteousness of Emmanuel. Without strength is as literal a description of your state as without goodness. If you understand the gospel, the consciousness of your total helplessness will be just the discovery that you are the very sinner. To whom the great salvation is sent, that your inability was all foreseen and provided for, and that you are in the very position which needs, which calls for, and which shall receive the aid of the Almighty Spirit. Do you feel yourself in this extremity of weakness? You are not in a condition, parenthesis, if I may say so, to receive the heavenly help. Your idea of remaining ability is the very thing that repels the help of the Spirit, just as any idea of remaining goodness thrusts away the perpetuation of the Savior. It is your not seeing that you have no strength that is keeping you from believing. So long as you think you have some strength in doing something, and especially in performing to your own and Satan's satisfaction, that great act or exercise of soul called faith. But when you find out that you have no strength left, you will in blessed despair cease to work, and ere you are aware, believe. For if believing, be not a ceasing from work. It is at least the necessary and immediate result of it. You expended your little stock of the imagined strength in holding fast the ropes of self-righteousness. But now, when the conviction of having no strength at all is forced upon you, you drop unto the arms of Jesus. But... This you will never do, so long as you fancy that you have strength to believe. That's from God's Way of Life of Peace by H. Bonner. Oh, that there were many preachers today honoring the third person of the Trinity by thus magnifying and emphasizing his part in the work of salvation. Oh, that a modern evangelist would faithfully press upon his unsaved hearers their utter powerlessness to turn into God of themselves and their inability inability to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior until miracle of divine grace. Has been wrought in them, the Lord Jesus parenthesis, our exemplar, did not hesitate to plainly say to a promiscuous crowd, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him john six forty four the Father draws to Christ by the operation of the spirit. It is written not by words of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy spirit titus three five Believing is necessary, indispensably necessary, before any sinner receives divine forgiveness. But scripture is very emphatic in declaring that no sinner can savingly believe apart from the powerful operations of the Holy Spirit. A miracle of grace has to be wrought in his heart before he is capacitated to lay hold of Christ. This must be so, for the human heart is fast closed against him and will not come to him that it might have life, John 5.40. The eyes of our understanding are blind, so that we see in Christ no beauty that we should desire him. It is with the heart that man believeth unto righteousness, Romans 10.10, and the heart must first be wooed and won by Christ, parenthesis through the Spirit's operations, before it will turn to him. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. Until this takes place, the Lord has to say of us all, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you, John 5.42. In the application of the atonement to the elect, each of them is entirely passive. Until the Holy Spirit has performed his initial work of grace in the soul, not only is each individual utterly incapable of seeking after Christ, see Romans 3.11, but he has no desire toward him and no sense of his real need of him. Not until he has been divinely quickened and brought out of that grave into which all the fall of Adam brought us all. Romans 5:12. Is any man capable of performing any spiritual action? There cannot be the manifestation of life before life for itself is imparted. A bitter fountain cannot send forth sweet waters. Neither can a corrupt heart delight in holy, in a holy object. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Neither can the unregenerate hate sin or love God. It is the Spirit that quickeneth; the flesh profiteth nothing. John 6:63. 6, for one who by sinful instincts loved and idolized the self, making everything subservient to having his own way, to be brought to deny and loathe himself, Job 42.6, and to forsake his own ways, Isaiah 55.7, is something which nothing short of omnipotence can bring about. For one who naturally hates God, parenthesis, desiring rather to think about and be occupied with anyone or anything else, parenthesis, To be brought to love him and delight in him, love him with all the heart and delight in him supremely, is indeed a miracle of grace. Yet let it be pointed out that true love to God is not begotten by fears of hell nor by hopes of heaven. The promptings of self-preservation will produce the one, as the workings of self-love will inspire the other. No, unless I love God for what he is in himself, I do not love him at all, but only lie to him with my lips." Yet it is only the Spirit who can cause any soul to say from the heart, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, glorious and holiness? Exodus fifteen eleven. Thus each person of the Godhead is due his own particular praise. The Father, for having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and predestinated us unto the adoption of children. The Son, for having served as our surety, fulfilled our obligations, and paid our debts. The Spirit, for having brought us from death unto life, convicted us of our lost condition, awakened us to our need of Christ, and drawn us to him. If the Father is to be adored because of his predestination and the Son because of his propitiation, equally so is the Spirit for his regeneration. We are indebted to the one as much as to the others. The work of Christ has been in vain were it not for the work of the Spirit in us. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15 applies as much to the Comforter as it does to the Redeemer. The embracing of Christ by faith presupposes both a true knowledge of ourselves and of the Savior himself. There has to be a divine conviction given to us of that sin and that wretchedness, thraldom and bondage into which we are reduced by the fall. The law must be our schoolmaster unto Christ. Without a discovery to us of sin and misery by the law, the sinner will never flee unto him who is... The end of the law for righteousness, Romans ten four. A man at sea sailing in a shattered boat close to a great rock will refuse to leave his boat and cast himself upon the rock for safety, so long as he believes his boat is strong enough to carry him to land. But when the wind and waves beat into his frail craft and break her into pieces, and not until then will he be glad to avail himself of the rock. So while the poor sinner imagines that his own doings and good intentions are sufficient to carry him through to heaven, he will never betake himself to the rock of ages. The powerful wind of the Spirit is needed to demolish that refuge of lies, Isaiah 28:17, in which the sinner shelters. If ever he is to perceive that a continuing to rest upon his own fancy goodness and righteousness must inevitably sink him into hell, not until the Spirit strips him of his own worthless doings and makes him to stand naked in all his shame and filthiness before God, will he truly cry, What must I do to be saved? As the apostle declared, I was alive, parenthesis, in, in my own estimation, without the law once, but when the commandment came, parenthesis, when God applied it in power to my understanding and conscience and showed me how far short I came of its righteous demands, end of parenthesis, sin revived, parenthesis, I then had a real appreciation of exceeding sinfulness of sin and my, of my utter unfitness to stand for a moment before the thrice holy God, and of parenthesis, and I died, saw myself as utterly lost, Romans 7, 9. Until the Spirit does press upon the soul the claims of God and its lifelong disregard of the same, until he applies to us that holy standard which bids us love God with all our heart mind and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and convicts us of the fact that not only have we made no honest attempt to do so, but have had no de- sincere desire to keep it, we are utterly blind to our dreadful sins of omission. Until the Spirit brings home to the heart our true state, notwithstanding all our selfish wish to be delivered from hell and taken to the heaven, yet the heart remains blind to the glory of God and what is due him from us. So far from the unregenerate sinner being willing to repent of his sins, he knows nothing whatever about the worst of his sins. So far from desiring to humble himself before God, he is totally ignorant of the reason why he should humble himself. So far from being anxious to be made spiritually alive, he is quite oblivious to the fact that he is spiritually dead. And so far from seeking the gracious enablement of the spirit to reconcile him to God, he is quite unaware that he is in the enemy of God. But all this is well nigh wholly lost sight of today by preachers and evangelists. A general assumption is, parenthesis, even though it be not plainly formulated, there is so little wrong with the fallen descendants of Adam that all they need to do is read the Bible and hear the gospel preached and they will be easily turned to Christ. A little information plus a little earnest persuasion and almost anyone can be induced to sign a card and accept Christ as his personal Savior. Consequently, the humble, dependent, fervent, united, and patient waiting upon God for the power of his Spirit is the thing of the past, and so too, parenthesis with very rare exception, are genuine miracles of grace. This Laodicean age has need of nothing, Revelation 3.17, Least of all does it feel its dire and desperate need of the Spirit of God to awaken the dead, to pull down strongholds, and cast down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians ten, 4, 5. Not until the sinner has been emptied of his self-sufficiency, convicted that he is an outlaw against God, and brought into the dust before him, is he ready to appreciate Christ. Nor will he, nor can he, savingly embrace the Redeemer until the Spirit has revealed Christ in him. Galatians 1.16 None can trust in the Savior they know not, and to know Christ as a living reality is a vastly different thing from having heard about him from the pulpit, or even to have read of him through the Scriptures. For God, For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 This is what must take place before any soul truly trusts Him. Have you, my reader, experienced a supernatural revelation of Christ to your heart? Once the Holy Spirit really reveals Christ to the soul, He needs no urging to receive Him. They that know Thy name will put their trust in Thee. Psalm 9.10 now it is not only the Spirit's province to apply the law, convict of sin, empty of pride, break down self-will, subdue self-love, but it is also his blessed office to take of these, the things of Christ, and show them unto, John 16:14 those for whom he died. He is here to teach those whom he awakens from the sleep of spiritual death, who the Redeemer is, the wondrous offices which he sustains, the great purpose for which he came into the world. He is here to slay their enmity against Christ, to destroy their unbelief, and to impart a saving faith. He is here to bring them into a saving knowledge of the truth. As the Lord himself declared, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, parenthesis by the Spirit, cometh unto me, John 6.45. The Spirit is here not to magnify himself, but to glorify the redeemer John sixteen fourteen He is here to reveal his lovely perfections unto God's elect to win their hearts to him, to conform them unto his blessed image. Various motives have induced us to dwell at length upon the application of the atonement as it is received by men, first because this is the sight of the truth which most honours God, inasmuch as it gives to him his proper place in the saving of sinners. Second, because of the appalling ignorance thereon, which now so widely prevails. Third, so that the Christian reader may the better perceive how much he owes to the gracious operations of the Spirit. Fourth, to make clear to preachers and evangelists the urgent need of using the plow of the law before they attempt to sow the seeds of the gospel. It is no avail to keep on saying to people, Believe on Christ until you have employed that scriptural material which the Spirit can use to convict souls of their awful need of Christ, we now turn to consider very briefly the appropriation of the atonement, or the sinner's own act, in becoming a personal partaker of the saving virtues of Christ's satisfaction. As we showed in our last chapter, the gospel is addressed to human responsibility. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. The business of God's servants is to preach and press the righteous demands of the divine law, to call upon sinners to repent of their transgressions, and turn from their wicked ways, to present Christ as a Savior from the curse of the law, and bid their hearts lay down their weapons of warfare against him, and receive him as their Lord and Savior. Not until Christ is cordially received as prophet, priest, and king is forgiveness of sins to be obtained, as prophet to reveal to us the righteousness and grace of God as priests who offered a sacrifice, the blood of which is sufficient to cleanse the followers to trust in him, as the king to rule over us. The object or design in our first coming to Christ is to be saved by him, to be saved from self, to be delivered from rebelling against God. He is the great physician and can allay the fever and cleanse the leprosy of sin. He who comes to Christ without a disposition to be reconciled to God is only seeking deliverance from hell and does not desire that salvation which the gospel proclaims, namely deliverance from the power and condemnation of sin. Saving faith implies in its very nature both repentance and conversion, or a turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. First Thessalonians 1 9. A mediator must be accepted by both parties that are at variance, and each must stand to what he doth. God has declared himself fully satisfied. It rests now with the individual sinner to also give the assent of his heart to Christ dying instead of the ungodly and rest upon the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Saving faith is that act of the soul whereby one who is hopeless, helpless and lost in himself does in a way of expectancy and trust seek for all help and relief in Christ alone. Faith is going out of ourselves unto God in Christ finding in him all that we need for time and eternity. Faith is the one link between the sinner and the sin-bearer. Faith is a receiving unto our hearts the testimony of God concerning his Son and a setting to our seal that he is true. John 3.33 Should these lines be read by a sin-burdened soul, distressed by the plague of his own heart, and fearful that he or she has sinned beyond the hope of divine pardon, we would point you to him who is mighty to save. Christ died not for righteous people but for the ungodly. Roman 5, six. He came here to save the lost. Luke 19.10 His promise is Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Hebrews 7.25 Then look away from your ruined self. Fly to Christ for refuge. Trust in His precious blood, and He will save you with an everlasting salvation.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.